We'll read together today. At the end of that reading, I'll say that this is the word of the Lord. And today we will also read the superscription as well. Let's begin. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. As I said last week, we began our time in Psalm 110. And I want to just quickly go through some review uh, so that we can all be on the same page this morning. Uh, and I will remind you, if you look at the last few verses of this psalm, this beautiful liturgical psalm, this, this psalm that was written for congregational singing, this psalm that looks forward to the coming of Messiah, of the Christ. And if you look at the last few verses, this is... Uh, this is not um, some kind of uh, ballad. Uh, if anything, that if any modern music could describe what we've just read, it is metal. Uh, Psalm 110 is metal in so many ways. So we are looking at uh, Psalm 110. And why is Psalm 110 so important? Well, Psalm 110 is the most quoted uh, Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. So if you read the New Testament, you'll find that often, whether it is Christ in the Gospels, uh, or even his opponents at times, uh, or the apostles uh, in the book of Acts, as well as in the epistles uh, to the church, even in John's Revelation, there is constant quoting of the Old Testament. Uh, this is why one of the things that we could uh, very readily say is that the New Testament is the greatest commentary on the Old Testament. Because what's being taught in the New Testament is Christ himself as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so really what is happening for us is God, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit through his Christ and the apostles, is giving us divine interpretation about what all of the Old Testament was about. Uh, most specifically, if you have any questions about that, I encourage you to go to Luke chapter 24 and see Christ himself give interpretation to the disciples who are on the road to Emmaus after the crucifixion and burial of Jesus Christ, unknowingly leaving town before the resurrection of Jesus. And there on that road, Jesus tells them something very important. He says that all of the law and all of the prophets and the Psalms point to him, to the Messiah, to the Christ. And so we come to the Psalms not to find something interesting about Old Testament history. We come to the Psalms to find something today about New Testament future. Uh, because there is something very important for us here today as we look at this. Psalm 110 is also a part of what's called a trilogy of Psalms, uh, which are uh, Davidic Psalms of Psalm 18, Psalm 109, and Psalm 110. And so I encourage you at other times as you go to study Psalm 110 on your own to look at it in conjunction with these other two Psalms. And uh, to remind you that uh, Luther said, there's no Psalm like it in the whole scripture. And it ought to be very dear to the church seeing 
that it contains that great article of the faith. Which article is that? Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father Almighty. Something that we ourselves will confess together before communion today. And then we looked at something interesting that we don't normally look at, didn't we? We looked at the superscription. That simple little phrase at the top of the psalm that says, A Psalm of David. Uh, Something that we most often sort of rapidly pass over and at times don't even mention at all. But here in this psalm, this superscription, a psalm of David, uh, I believe is perhaps one of the most important superscriptions in all of the psalms because it played into how Jesus himself uh, used the psalm and how his opponents already interpreted Psalm 110. Uh, When Jesus comes along, it's not a new thing for Jesus to infer that this psalm is about the coming Messiah, in this case, himself, uh, but rather even the scribes and the Pharisees at that time would have also uh, interpreted Psalm 110 as not being about David, but rather about David's Lord, who could only be uh, the coming Messiah. And so we went through all of this time uh, last week looking at the first oracle. There are two oracles in Psalm 110, the first coming in verse 1. And the translators of our text today have done a good job of helping us see these two different oracles. Because in verse 1 and in verse 4, you will find quotations around the oracle. So it doesn't, you don't have to work very hard to figure out which part of the psalm is what we're calling the oracle. The first one is in verse 1. The second one is in verse 4. Make mention of that because Vatican, the Vatican would say there are three oracles in Psalm 110. The second oracle coming in verse 2 at the end of verse 2 but really what we would see is that verses 2 and 3 and verses 5 through 7 are more descriptions of what these oracles are proclaiming uh, descriptions of how these oracles will be carried out and so we really see two oracles here and those are uh shown to you in the text by the translators by putting quotations around them. The first one being what? This amazing statement. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And last week we saw how that this shows us the kingly office of the Messiah. And as we went through Matthew and Acts and 1 Corinthians, we see that the biblical interpretation is not ambiguous at all. The Messiah prophesied about in all of the Old Testament and, and pointed to here in Psalm 110 verse 1 is none other than Jesus of Nazareth, the one whom God has made, as Peter the Apostle said on the day of Pentecost, both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. And so as a result, what do we see here? We see that Christ is not just this uh, humble servant, though he was, who came and allowed himself to be beaten and scourged and killed. But he is king. He is the king. And he did not merely become king by going through those things, but he was king and condescended to humble himself to such a place. And as a result, as we finished last week looking at Philippians chapter 2, therefore God has highly exalted him, this Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of of Jesus, make no mistake, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what is Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, David said, come and sit at my right hand until I make every enemy your footstool. 
Here, Paul says that all of this is being done to the glory of God the Father. And we said what? That this should do something for us. What should it do for us? (laughs) Well, we have a king who is not uh, exiled in oblivion or obscurity. He he is not um, somehow living an impoverished life, shackled somewhere by the devil? No. The one who is shackled is the devil. The one who is reigning is Jesus Christ, our King and our Lord. And though in this life we will be met with resistance, we need to take heart. For the one whom we serve is the conquering king of all the universe, Jesus Christ, who died and was raised and exalted to the right hand of the Father. Amen? Amen. This should fill us with confidence, with faith. That's what confidence is, confide, with faith. This should fill us with faith and hope and trust in our Jesus who is king. And so today we're going to now turn our attention to the second oracle in verse number four. So this second oracle comes forth. I'll remind you that the word oracle uh, is just merely a word that means that God is speaking. Okay, and so here we see God himself, the Lord of verse one, uh, all caps, Lord capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, the God of Israel, it's the one who is speaking. He's already spoken a word that says that this Christ will be king. Amen. Now we come to verse 4 and we see something else that almost seems contradictory at face value. So here in verse 4 it says, the Lord has sworn. So now this is more than A speaking forth, although God is not a man that he should lie, so he does not need to swear by anything. But here, for added emphasis, it says that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. In other words, if there was any doubt, if there's anything in us that could possibly uh, think that maybe God would, would shift in this area, he swears by an oath. That he will not change his mind. This is very important for us. And what is his oath? And what does he swear? And what is the oracle that he proclaims? That you, now which you is this? It's the same you that is the second Lord in verse number one. So he's not speaking here to David, but rather he says, You, the Lord, are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek. Now, here we are told that not only is the Christ, who is David's Lord, to be a king forever, but this king will also be a priest. Now, this is interesting because according to Judaic law, the only ones who could be priests were those who were descended from Aaron. And Aaron was of the tribe of Levi. And so immediately there is conflict because according to the law of Moses, only those descended from Aaron of the tribe of Levi could be priests before God in his temple. But David, and remember we said that this Christ, we saw last week that the Christ shall be called what? The son of David. Was anyone here? Okay, are you with me? He will be the son of David, not the son of Aaron, but the son of David. And we see as we go to the genealogy of Jesus that he comes from the line of David in the tribe of Judah, which is the tribe of kings, not of priests. David is not from the tribe of Levi. He's descended from the tribe of Judah. And any other thing would be unlawful according to the law of Moses. But the oracle does not say that the Christ will be a priest after the order of Aaron. He will not be an Aaronic priest. But rather it says what? A priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now who 
in the world is Melchizedek. He's got a pretty awesome name. But other than that, who is this guy? To answer the question, which seems to be important to do, if we, we are saying that this Christ will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, we need to figure out who Melchizedek is. So let's turn back to Genesis before the law of Moses was given. In Genesis chapter 14, we are introduced to this obscure character in the Old Testament narrative named Melchizedek. Now, if you remember, before Abraham was called Abraham, his name was Abram. And Abram had a nephew who was prone to trouble, and his name was Lot. And on more than one occasion, the Old Testament narrative shows us that Abram had to intervene on behalf of his nephew Lot and rescue him. And in this case, that's just what has happened. And we're going to pick up the narrative in verse 17 of Genesis 14. And what's just happened is that Abram and some of his servants who were mighty men and trained in battle, uh, which I love. So these are um, Abram's shepherds and uh, workers, and yet Abram trained them, it seems, in warfare and battle. And they go out and they rescue Lot from the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah. In verse 17, it says this, After his return from the defeat of another guy with a really awesome name, Chedor Laamor, I have no idea how to say that. It's one of those ones you just fake it till you make it, okay? I have no idea. Chedor Laamor. And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva. That is the king's valley. And who do we see? Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, parenthetically, what does it tell us? He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, him being Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him, now him being Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. In other words, he has taken an oath, a solemn oath. I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschal, and Mamre take their share. And that's the end of chapter 14 and the end of everything that we know from Genesis about this man named Melchizedek. That's it. That is all we know about Melchizedek from the Old Testament narrative until we get to Psalm 110. Where here, now the person lifting a hand is not Abram, but God himself, Yahweh, saying, I have sworn and will not change my mind. You, the Christ, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So who was this Melchizedek? He was interesting because why? He was not just a king. But he was also, what? Remember, parenthetically, he was also a priest of the Most High. It says that he was king of Salem. Most likely the king of what we now call Jerusalem. Salem meaning peace. So he was a priest king of God Most High. And he operated in spiritual power, as we see, because... 
He did not just greet Abram, but rather what? Blessed him spiritually, which connotates spiritual authority. And so we see that while he was a priest king, that with this spiritual utterance, we also see in Melchizedek a prophetic role as well as king and priest. Not only that, but we see here Abram. And who was Abram? Abram, chosen by God out of all of sinful humanity, out of Ur of the Chaldeans, the land of his father and his father's idols. Abram is called to follow God. And God says to Abram, through you, I am going to bless all the nations of the earth. It's a pretty important guy. And yet, what do we see exhibited from Abram towards Melchizedek? It is not Melchizedek who comes and bends a knee to Abram, but rather we see deference being given from Abram to Melchizedek, which shows what? That there was a kind of authority that Abram recognized in Melchizedek that brought about an attitude of deference towards him where he rather bent the knee to Melchizedek instead of the other way around. Not only in word, but what do we see? Abram gives to Melchizedek a tenth, a tithe of everything. And so this is not just lip service, but in action, Abram shows the place that Melchizedek has above him. Such an obscure story is related about this interaction that Abram had with this random king of Salem, this king of peace, if you will. Uh, but Melchizedek, the name Melchizedek also references righteousness. So he is a king of peace and he is a priest of righteousness. But we see that God was doing something here all the way back in Genesis 14, all the way back at this very obscure interaction with Abram. God was setting up an object lesson for us because this is something that God was using to be a sign pointing ahead and something for us to look back to as well to see that God had something very special planned along for us in Christ. Melchizedek, who features very little in all of the Old Testament except for this very important oracle in Psalm 110, will suddenly take on great significance in the New Testament any New Testament scholars in the room? In what book? In the book of Hebrews. Which is incredibly important for understanding the connection between the Old and the New Covenants. That's what Hebrews is all about. It is showing how that the New Covenant in Christ is better than the Old Covenant. And this guy, Melchizedek, features heavily in the book of Hebrews. And so we're going to look at that. In Hebrews chapter 4, let's pick it up in Hebrews 4, verse 14 through 16. Now, we don't know exactly who the author of Hebrews is. Um, one of the best understandings of the book of Hebrews that I have found, and I think holds quite a bit of weight, is that the book of Hebrews is actually a transcribed sermon. Uh, that was preached most likely uh, during the council in Jerusalem. And many people believe that it was Paul who was preaching the sermon and may himself have written it down. Uh, other people have many other arguments about who they think wrote it. But suffice it to say, 
Hebrews is an incredibly important New Testament book for us, but it is different uh, than the other books because it does not carry the same sort of um, flow as the rest of the epistles. It's delivered differently. And why often uh, we will say the preacher said in Hebrews rather than uh, the writer because it seems to be a sermon. And so here in Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14, we pick up the flow of this sermon, if you will. And here, uh, the preacher begins to talk to us about this great high priest that we now have in Jesus Christ. So we're looking at the priestly office now of Jesus. It says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If we think back quickly to the Old Testament again, we see three different offices shown to us repeatedly in the Old Testament text. And there is a succession of these three offices. They are prophet, they are priest, and they are king. And in every case, we find that in these earthly prophets, priests, and kings, the prophets imbued with special ability, the priests imbued supposedly with special uh, um, affection, there's supposed to be great affection for the people who they are servants and ministers of, and kings who are imbued by God with special authority. Now again, that authority is meant to be a secondary authority. It is meant to be an authority that is used to usher the people of God to their true king, who is God himself. But in every case, we find that while God will have godly prophets who are there to lead the people, rather what happens is false prophets arise and lead the people astray. And even those godly prophets who God raises up, they themselves battle in the flesh. Remember Elijah, as almost as soon as he has this great victory on Mount Carmel, uh, where he, Carmel, sorry, Carmel, you eat, Carmel is the mountain. On Mount Carmel, some would argue with that, that's fine. On Mount Carmel, he has this great victory over the priests of Baal, where God brings down fire from heaven, consumes the sacrifice. Elijah draws the sword and slays uh, the prophets of Baal, then prays for rain to come after this long drought, and God brings rain. And then he bows himself down and races the king's chariots down the mountain and beats the horses down the mountain. This is a guy who has just experienced incredible victory and power in the name of Yahweh. And then the queen says, I'm going to kill that guy. And he tucks tail and he runs away. And he ends up even in the midst of his running God sending an angel to uh, renew and invigorate him such that he goes 40 days and nights after being ministered to by the angel without rest and without food and ends up in a cave. And what does he say? God, please, will you just kill me now? I'm the only one left. Here's this man of great power an authority who's experienced incredible things at the hand of God, and yet in his flesh, he doubts. And so even the prophets endued with great ability. And then the priests, beginning with Aaron, 
almost immediately uh, abandoning the God of Israel and leading the people in false worship. But not only that, we see that those who followed after him, beginning with his sons, who offered strange fire before the Lord, they disdained the Lord's command. But time and time again, we see those who were called to be priests, who were called to minister to the people of God, to be servants before them, rather had no sympathy for the people, but rather exploited them for their own benefit and their own good. And the kings also did not rule with righteousness, but rather in unrighteousness, and time and time again would lead the people astray. And so it's an incredible thing to think here and now who is being presented to us as not an earthly prophet or an earthly priest or an earthly king who in their life is so far removed from the trials and temptations and hurts that we ourselves have had, but rather God in Christ has given us one, what did it say? Who is able uh, to draw from the meaning of the text. He is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, he is able as a priest to offer sacrifice for us. But how did this play out? Carry on in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. In other words, they stand between. They stand in the gap. They are the ones who are there intervening as an intermediate, a mediator between God and men to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. It says he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. Don't forget that whenever the high priest would come to make sacrifice for sin for the people, the first thing he had to do was make sacrifice for himself. And basically, he had to make the same sacrifice for his own sin as he made for all the people. It says here in verse 4, And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Verse 6, as he says also in another place, now quoting Psalm 110, the second oracle from verse number 4, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So here Jesus is called a priest, but he's not a priest after the order of Aaron. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. It's a different order, an order that came before the law of Moses. And as such, even though Jesus is being descended from David in the tribe of Judah as a king, he is also called here a priest, a priest king. Picking up in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast 
to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steady, steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, in other words, into the Holy of Holies, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, pointing to this special office of priest that Jesus has, where he is not a priest who will give up his role because of death, but because he has conquered death, he retains that priestly role forever. Forever. Which is why the preacher in Hebrews, you know this verse, we know this verse, as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. I mean, this is one of those coffee cup verses. This is one of those verses that has become a tattoo verse. People get the anchor. Ta- I've thought about it. Get the anchor tattooed in the verse because it's beautiful. It's what we were singing. He will hold me fast. Why can he hold us fast? Because he himself is held fast. When we go to Ephesians chapter 2 and we say, but we have been raised up to heavenly places with Christ Jesus. And we say that we have hope that this shall not be shaken. Why? Because Christ cannot be shaken. How secure is Jesus Christ? Psalm 110 verse 1. Where is He now? He is seated at the right hand of the Father where He will continue to rule and reign until every enemy has become His footstool. And the last enemy we saw last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is what? It is death. So death itself cannot unseat Christ from his place as king and priest. Praise God. Continuing in chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. That's what we just read about in Genesis 14. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And this is an interesting point. If you read through the book of Genesis, what do you find every so many chapters? You find this long, he begat so-and-so, and that person begat another so-and-so, and that so-and-so begat another so-and-so, and that so-and-so begat another so-and-so. We have a bunch of words, of names of people with really cool names that you just make up as you go, all right? As we did earlier. Not really. There is a right way to say it. I wish I knew what it was. And that's important. It happens over and over again in the text. God is showing us, for one thing, that this is not just a story, but it is a historical account of these people who lived and who died and begat children. But interestingly in the text, Melchizedek is one of these few characters who shows up without genealogy. He just suddenly appears in the text. There he is. Boom. And it doesn't tell us who his father was. And it doesn't tell us who his children were. Now this does not mean that he did not have a father or children. But God was doing something even in the inspiration of the writing of the text to show us a shadow of something. Now, there are people who would argue, very vehemently in some cases, that they think that Melchizedek is a Christophany, a pre-incarnate Christ showing up 
on the scene. Maybe. We know that those things, we see those things in the text, and there are some times that we go, you know what? It really seems like that might have been a pre-incarnate Christ. And here, meh, I don't know. Is it possible? Well, it happened in other places. It has to be possible. But I don't think that the evidence really shows. And here it doesn't say in Hebrews 7 that he was the Son of God, but rather that just in the mere record of the account, because he does not come with father or children, that he resembles the Son of God. What is this? This is called typology. This is the things that in the Old Testament point forward and shadow the coming of Christ without being Christ himself. Now, let's make no mistake, as we've talked about before, in order for a shadow to be there, the substance must be present. But it doesn't mean that the shadow is the substance. And so what the preacher in Hebrews is trying to tell us is not that Melchizedek was Jesus, but that Melchizedek was foreshadowing Jesus. He was pointing forward to one who would come and continue as priest forever. Let's jump to verse 11 of chapter 7. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Now this is important. This shows us that from the beginning it was never the plan for the people of God to attain righteousness through the law or through the ministry of the sons of Aaron. That's pretty important. Verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him, again Psalm 110 verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of what? Of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds, who is he? Christ, Jesus. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that he should have ha that he should have, pardon me. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need 
like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoint a son who has been made perfect forever. That's the kind of priest that we have in Jesus Christ. Now watch what happens in the verses following the oracles if we go back to Psalm 110. So we have these two oracles, these words from the Lord, through David's mouth and pen as a prophet, which we know even as king he was. And so we have the first one, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, showing the kingly office of the Christ who is to come. The second oracle coming from verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, showing that not only would the Christ be a king, but he would be a priest king. This is interesting because the king enforces what? The law and requires what? obedience but what does a priest offer forgiveness which requires infraction do you see here we have not only the one that we are commanded to obey and we can't but in him we also are given the one who is able to declare us righteous because of his ministry for us as priest. And what kind of priest king will he be? Look at verses 2-3 of Psalm 110. See this now as a description of the kind of priest and king that he will be. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Now what does that scepter represent? It represents rule. It represents authority. It represents status and position. Remember, it was the scepter that king, the king of Persia had to extend to Esther in order for her to be able to approach him. If you miss this in this story of Esther, then you miss the whole importance of her going before the king. This is what would happen. In the throne room of the king... There were soldiers posted at the doors of the throne room. And they had giant swords. Sometimes even those kinds of swords that were on the ends of, of great staffs. So you would have a staff with this long sort of scythe of a, a skit, sky, how do you, scythe of a blade at the end of this staff where they would be posted at the doors. And if anyone came through that door... There was literally a split second where if they had not been summoned, the king had to extend his scepter, which was a sign of his position and status and rule and authority, toward them. And if he did not extend that scepter even at all or fast enough, within a split second, that person's head would be lopped from their shoulders by those soldiers at the door. So when Esther came into the throne room and the text talked about the king extending his scepter to her, that's how important that moment was and she did it more than once. And what did it show? It showed that she had received favor in the eyes of the king. What, what were we told earlier in the book of Hebrews? That we should boldly come before the throne of grace. What does that mean? It, it, is, it is because of Christ that we have found favor in the eyes of of the Lord. He has in Christ extended 
his scepter towards us. It says, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. What does it say? Rule in the midst of your enemies. This means that his rule, though it is resisted in some cases, though there are those who are opposed, yet his rule does not, is not thwarted. He continues to rule in the midst of his enemies. And then it says this in verse 3, and I love this. And this is why we may end up spending more time here next week. We'll see. But it says, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. What is this? If not the irresistible grace of God being shown to those who have been unconditionally elected to him. <laughs> who? who, Your people. They are his. And yet, they offer themselves freely. But is any one of us by ourselves able to offer ourselves freely? No, the rest of Scripture shows us that that is impossible that it takes an intervening grace by the Holy Spirit to come and awaken our hearts and make us willing. And that's exactly what God does. Your people, your people, an identified people, will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. And is this not what we see happens all the time? The word of the gospel goes out. And by the Spirit, God makes willing those whom God has called to himself. And they do. They offer themselves freely. But why? Because God has made them willing. He says, on the day of your power. That day comes to us in many different ways. It's not just on the day of salvation that we are made willing. But what do we find? We find that God's people offer themselves freely whenever God needs them. We see this happen time and time again when there are those who are in need in the body. And what do we find? We find people filled with the Spirit of God who do not act like the priest and the Levite towards the Samaritan when their brothers and sisters are in trouble, but rather on the day of power that God has appointed where he is going to minister to one of his kids, the people of God offer themselves freely and minister to their brothers and sisters in Christ. When the church of God has need, the people of God offer themselves freely in generosity to meet that need. That's what God does to his people. He makes them willing and we offer ourselves freely. Why? Because we're so good? Because we're so wonderful on the inside? Because we've got it going on? No, because the Spirit of God Almighty has moved on our hearts and he, because we are his, has made us willing. And we find ourselves raising our hands to volunteer to do things that if it wasn't for the Spirit of God, we would probably never volunteer to do. Because the people of God offer themselves freely on the day of His power. From the womb of the morning, he says, the dew of your youth will be yours. I would have to admit that this is one of the most confusing lines of Scripture. I don't know that I can say this is what this means, but it seems that even as the dew comes every morning and we still cannot entirely figure out how or where or why, but it comes and it comes from God, even so, no matter how much opposition we meet, no matter how much resistance there is, though they were uh, the enemies that God is ruling in the midst of, though they were to kill us all, it seems... Yet, God 
would raise up for himself his people called by his name. And they would be each day like the dew in the morning. Remember, we reference Elijah. And he runs and he hides in the cave. And he says, why don't you just kill me now? I'm the only one. And what did God come and say to Elijah? Not that there were seven more. Not that there were 70 more. Or 700 more. But 7,000 others who had not bent the knee to Baal. Who were those? They were God's people called by his name who were offering themselves freely to God for his service because that's what God's people do. And so even when it seems like there's no one else, even when it seems like you're the only one, maybe at work or in school, kids, wherever you go, if we felt like we were the only ones in San Antonio, praise God, we don't feel that way. Yet, if that was the case, we would take heart and believe that through the proclamation of the gospel, God would raise up his people as an army and they would be like the dew in the morning. Each new day. You feel the grass at night, it's dry, especially here in Texas. Yet somehow, each morning, the dew is there because God sin it. Amen? Verses 5 through 7 quickly. says here, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. If you remember the story of Gideon, it was at the brook that those who would be called to fight were separated by those who were sent home. And there's been much speculation about why the people who bent down and lifted their head and drew the water up to their mouth versus those who got down on all fours and drank from the brook, why God said this or that. But one of the things that we know is that it would not take much to defeat the person who is on all fours sticking their head in the water. But the one who lifted the water up to their raised head was a person who was still ready for battle. They were champions. They were warriors. Though God did not use them that way in that time. And yet we see here not someone who is weary from battle. Come and sit at my right hand till I make every enemy your footstool. It is not because Christ will be tired. He does not need to put up his feet because he needs rest. The position of his feet is to show his power and authority over those he has conquered. And so we see here a description of our priest king, which is awesome in the most appropriate way. Because it strikes awe. It ought to strike awe in our hearts because our God is fearsome and great and yet we are the ones who have found favor in his eyes and his scepter has been extended to us and if it were not for that then it would be our corpses filling the nations. Both of these passages following the oracles describe Christ's reign as a priestly king. 
and the kind of rule he will have over his people. And it also describes the two choices placed before the watching world. Offer yourself freely if you've been made willing or be crushed under the shattering weight of his glory and judgment. This is our Jesus, our high priest and king forever. But as high priest and king, where is he? He is where verse 1 says he is. He has been exalted after his death and burial and resurrection and ascension. He has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. And he is what? He is seated. He is seated. What does this mean? Well, what does it mean for you when you sit down at the end of the day? It means your work is complete. Work accomplished. Or as Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. What did it say about the difference between Christ's priesthood and the Aaronic priesthood? He has no need, the text said, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this, how many times? Once for all when he offered up himself. Now do some thinking back. Remember the Old Testament. Remember the tabernacle and the temple. And the most holy place. The holy of holies. And in the holy of holies was the ark of the covenant. And there was only one seat in the Holy of Holies. And it wasn't for the priest. It's what we call the mercy seat. And where was the mercy seat located? It was on top of the Ark of the Covenant between the two cherubim. And it was called the seat of the Most High God. Where he would come and he would sit. For there was no seat for the priest who must offer continually sacrifices for himself and for the sins of the people. But we have a priest who is seated. Because his work for us is complete without anything left out. Not one little bit left over for himself or for us to complete. He did it all and therefore has earned the right as priest and king to sit at the right hand of the Father and rule and reign until every enemy has been made his footstool. It is now our judge who having finished his work is seated, ruling and reigning in judgment and mercy for he has dominion Overall, So Paul prays for the church a prayer that I'd like to pray for us today. A prayer that contains the application for us in this psalm. To know the hope to which we have been called. And the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of power toward us who believe. Why? Because our response he who is king and priest it is to submit to his rule and authority and to receive 
his work of ministry for us. Let's pray. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. And God, I lift up to you today this prayer from Ephesians chapter 1 on behalf of those whom you have called here in this place today. And God, I pray for this reason, because, Lord, of the faith that they have in the Lord Jesus and their love toward all the saints. God, I give you thanks for them and remember them now in this prayer that you, O oh God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give unto us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. That we would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us. That we would know what are the riches of the glorious inheritance that we share with all the saints. And that we would know what is that immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. According to the working of your great might. That you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places. In that place far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Because you have put all things under his feet and given to him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.